Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. As we just finished out this chapter, Psalms 96, verses 10 through 13, where the psalmist says, Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved, and He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad, and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar, and all that fills it. Let the field exalt, and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for He comes. For He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness, and the peoples in His faithfulness. Amen? How glorious are your works. They surround us with beauty each and every day. They tell us of your mighty hand and creativity. Creation itself demonstrates your intelligence, ingenuity, and wisdom. All things work in harmony to reveal your greatness. Even in the midst of war, destruction, and encroaching evil, you are not far from us. And even in the darkest of times, we know that your hand is near. Let us trust in your providence, in your justice, mercy, and love. All of these were displayed at the cross. Mercy and justice in one glorious display. Sent here to show us the love of the Father, Jesus obeyed the will of the Father. In order that we, who were dead in our trespasses, God has made alive together with Him, forgiven us all of our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This, Father, you set aside, nailing it to that old rugged cross. You disarmed the rulers and authorities, and you put them to open shame by triumphing over them in your Son. In this we stand and put our faith. For it is in the name of Jesus is there salvation, and under no other name. We come together this morning as your people, to proclaim that Jesus is Lord. and Father, we submit to your Son as our righteous King. We pray that you would bring peace to this community of believers. Let our love be genuine. May we abhor what is evil, and may we hold fast to what is good. Holy Spirit, empower us to love one another with a brotherly affection, and that we may desire to outdo one another in showing honor as your word has commanded us. And finally, Lord, we pray that the Holy Spirit will help us not to be slothful in our zeal and passion for you, but that we be fervent in spirit, desiring to serve the Lord, motivated by his love to do the works that you've granted us to do beforehand. We pray all this in the name of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, our advocate and our high priest. And all of God's people said, what a great God we have. Take your Bibles and join with me in James as we talk about war and peace in the house of God. War and peace in the house of God. We're going to be covering the last part of James 3 and just delving very quickly into the border of James chapter 4. In our passage the last two weeks, 
James has declared that faith without works cannot save, and that faith without works is dead and useless, and the importance of self-control in the use of our tongue. And like our Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ from the first century to which this was written to, we are in the midst of a hostile environment as we discovered last week. We too are under attack for our faith in Christ, are we not? What we say and how we say it goes a long way in proving the truths of Scripture and our faith in Christ. And just as their home church fellowship was a place of refuge and sanctuary, so is Orange Villa Bible Church a place of refuge and sanctuary for those that are here. And we should not fail in exercising self-discipline and honoring God with our words. Amen? We looked at four observations about the tongue last week. I just want to give those to you just as a matter of review as we realize that the tongue was a powerful instrument. The tongue is also a destructive force and the tongue is very difficult to control and it can lead to an inconsistent faith if it is untamed. Now, after preaching that last week, some of you are convicted and then probably some of you proved my point afterwards this week, amen, as we just went through and we recognize even though all those things are true, we still struggle with our tongue. We struggle with the things that we say, with the things that we harbor in our heart. Again, I want you to imagine, as we did last week, these Jewish believers who are living far from home. They're alienated by their culture around them, and they're persecuted socially and economically, not only from the pagans, but even from their own Jewish brothers and sisters because of their faith that Christ is the Messiah. James is telling them that as strangers and aliens in another land, just as we read earlier in 1 Peter, they are to be the salt and light that Jesus taught them to be and that they are to make disciples of all nations and their actions and their words will be a loud testimony about whether or not they truly believe that Jesus was true or not. He writes to encourage them to live out their faith and to bear fruits in keeping with their repentance by doing good works and by exercising self-discipline in the matters of speech. So in the midst of this persecution and poverty and suffering, James is telling them that you are to love your enemies, you're to pray for those who persecute you, you're to give cheerfully and generously and count it all joy while undergoing suffering. This is what we've learned so far from our study of James. The question is, is how would they respond to James' commands? Would they count the cost and follow Christ? Would they consider Christ or following Christ worth it? I'm just thinking here, just as I'm reading through the message, I don't know how many of you saw the article yesterday, and I do not remember what article or what paper it was in. It was an online version. But Christians in, in, um, in Iraq, uh, one of the cities, Mosul, M-O-S-U-L, I, I don't know if that's the right pronunciation or not, but there are Christians that have just been uh, commanded by, those, by that group, ISIS, that they must either leave the town or deny their faith or pay a tax or die. And in that, they said, if you do not deny Christ, then you must either pay this tax or you're just going to die. Or leave, the or leave the country. And if you leave, they tell them, leave your cars, 
Leave your money and leave all your property there because we're giving all your property then to someone else. Thousands of Christians are leaving that city. That city, which has had a Christian presence since the first century, is now devoid of any Christian presence as they have to leave and fear for their faith. Now, they could stay if they just deny Christ, but they count the cost and leave. Would we count that cost? How would you respond to that demand? A life of self-discipline is necessary in a hostile environment. Jewish Christians should understand the importance of how evil the tongue can be and how our actions speak volumes about who we truly are. They themselves were recipients of hate speech and other vile accusations for their faith in Jesus. Jesus had taught them not to respond in a hateful manner. Their house of worship was their only refuge and sanctuary. It was there that they were accepted and encouraged. And that's why James is encouraging them to practice such self-discipline for those who follow Christ and how they speak to one another in church. For church should be a healthy community, and this is what we learned last week. It should be a healthy community, one of peace, of love, and harmony, and a refuge from a cruel, taunting world, and yet we find ourselves in the same way today. In the past few weeks, we've looked at how words and works validate saving faith, true saving faith. And today, James is going to add wisdom to works and words as wisdom is that which brings peace in the church community. Father, give us wisdom now as we open up your word and understand a book that was written 2,000 years ago to a people far removed from our culture and from our understanding. Lord, let us transgress that time in such a way through your spirit that we understand what you have for us. Lord, for the words that were written to them are as apropos to us today. It's of relevance. It's of importance. And Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, may we be encouraged and challenged, and may we respond through the Holy Spirit's work. We pray this in your name. Amen. You and I, if you've been in any church for any length of time, you know that there is war and peace in the house of God, is there not? Uh, this church, unfortunately, has gone through both sets. Right now, we're through a time of peace. But let me tell you, war is always knocking at its door. Satan is always looking for a way to get into the church and to create a havoc in the house of God. He looks to do that in your marriages. He looks to do that in your families. He looks to do that in all of your relationships. So it should be no surprise that he tries to do that in the house of God. And James today is going to share with us Wisdom, how wisdom and humility leads to peace in the house of God. If it's the refuge from a world that hates us, from the world that despises us, then we must make sure that within the confines of not just this building, but in the confines of Christian brothers and sisters, that we are at peace and harmony. And what we're going to see, that it's wisdom, humility, leads to peace in the house of God. As we go on, I would like to turn you to chapter 3 and look at verse 13 as James gives them an invitation to step up and prove their faith. 
says, I want to see what you're really made of. Tell me if what you say is true. When he writes, who is wise and understanding among you? Show me that person. Stand up. Who's of you who think you're wise and understanding? Show yourself. Prove it. How? For by his good conduct, let him show his work in the weakness of wisdom. To James, he did not care what your profession was. He wanted to see the proof of your words. Don't tell me how good you are. Don't tell me how wise you are. Don't tell me how righteous you are. Show me. He was one of those types of characters. Not that he distrusted your word, but he wanted to show that it followed through in your profession of faith. John MacArthur writes that the word wise here is the common Greek word really for speculative knowledge and philosophy. And when they thought of wisdom, they thought of just attaining more information, maybe being good with the tongue and rhetoric. However, the Hebrews infused wisdom with a much richer meaning, which meant skillfully applying knowledge to the matter of practical living. So for the Hebrews, when we think of the wisdom literature, we think of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, we think of those types of literature, they want to see how wisdom lives out in the way that you live and how it works itself out. In other words, if there's going to be peace in the house of God, then wisdom is going to be necessary as the fruit of wisdom is meekness and a humble spirit. As he says, he shows his works in the meekness of wisdom. So in this case, it's not intellectual knowledge that puffs up. It's not that intellectual knowledge and the knowing of philosophy and being able to use big words to twist and turn and make your way into confusion and have everyone bring up and say, oh, listen to what he has to say. But it's one in which it's humble and says, here's what God's word has to say. Now, understanding this is that when James writes this, the Roman and Greek cultures of that time did not prize humility. Humility was not a virtue to them. They were very much puffed up, and to dominate their opponent was very, very necessary. But Jesus prized humility very much. As he said in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. I want to share with you there's two kinds of wisdom. And that's where we're going to go as we continue through this passage. There's two kinds of wisdom. The first one we're going to see in verses 14 and verse 16. And that's a worldly wisdom. And that's a worldly wisdom that leads to disorder and sin. Look at verse 14 with me. He says, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. In other words, to harbor jealousy and ambition actually shows a false claim of wisdom. James says, don't, don't tell me that you're wise if you're harboring these types of things in your heart. John MacArthur continues writing that that phrase, selfish ambition, is sometimes translated strife. And if you have a King James or New King James, you may have the word strife in there. It refers to a self-seeking that engenders antagonism and factionalism. It creates to, to separate people. 
The Greek word came to describe anyone who entered politics. Is that surprising? For selfish reasons, who seeks to achieve his agenda at any cost, even if that means trampling on others. Now, unfortunately, as we laugh about that, in many ways, that's the American way. Unfortunately, has it not? To dominate one. One of the things that I love, I love basketball. I love basketball. But one of the things that I hate about basketball is all the trash talking. And it seems like that's just gone to every sport. It's not enough to score. It's not enough to do well. But you must, you know, rub someone's face in it. It's kind of interesting. I'll go out and play basketball. And I'll be out with these young kids sometimes playing. And, and as they're, they're usually doing two laps to my one lap. But I'll, I'll, I'll be guarding someone. If he scores on me, I'll say, hey, good move. Hey, good shot. And they just look at you like, what are you, you trying to start something here with me? I'm saying, no, I thought it was a good move. You, you fooled me. It was a good shot. You did well. Well, they're not used to that. Why? Because you're to dominate. You're to, and it seems like that's what's happened in our politics. It's what's happened in our, in our social fabric of life. We're always cutting down and tearing down others. And sometimes we do it in a joking manner and sometimes in a loving manner in which way we show love, but yet in the end, many times it exhibits the wrong thing. You see, this type of wisdom is not from God. This wisdom that I'm all right and you're all wrong. Intellectual pursuits alone does not make one wise. Claiming to be wise, the Bible says, they became fools. Why? Because they look at the things of God and declare it to be untrue. You see, this type of wisdom is from the world. It's from the flesh and it's from the devil. Pastor MacArthur continuing, I like to just say what he says here on this passage. He says, by writing this description of man's wisdom, he says that it's limited to earth. It's only the things of this earth that they can have. Just the facts and their logical and human reasoning, all which are gifts from God but still misused by man. It's characterized by humanness, by frailty and an unsanctified heart in an unredeemed spirit, we must remember that even our human logic and our reason is still stained and tainted with sin, is it not? It still wants to deny God as it looks right into His face. And not only that, this type of wisdom is generated by the forces of Satan. And some of you might say, what, Satan? Satan is real. And that's something I think many times the church has forgotten. He is a real enemy seeking to destroy. Jesus believed that he was real. If Jesus is mistaken about that, then we might as well throw it all away. And you and I are just wasting time. And let's just go get to the baked goods. But yet we act as if he's not like a roaring lion seeking to whom he may devour. We don't act like we have a great accuser. Yes, he is toothless. Yes, his claws have been declawed or however that goes. But we have to realize we still have an enemy. He's more like a barking dog calling out your name. Come play with me. Come play with me. This type of wisdom comes from him. And it seeks to drive us deep into it. And not only that, but this type of wisdom, the Bible tells us, results in disorder and sin. Let me ask you, 
let's take all the human wisdom and all the human logic and all the human philosophies that have created all sorts of social and capital and political structures. And let me see, is there any disorder and sin in them? Even in American capitalism? In the end, all that wisdom that is man-based leads to the same thing, disorder and sin. We need to recognize this type of wisdom is not from God. There's some of you that cling to this type of wisdom. You desire this type of wisdom. You want this type of wisdom. You, you have heroes that, that are these parts of wisdom. But let me tell you, that is not the wisdom of God. For he leads us in verse 17 and 18 to the second type of wisdom. And that's the godly wisdom that leads to peace and righteousness. The godly wisdom that leads to peace and righteousness. Look what he says in verse 17. He says, but the wisdom that is from above, that comes from God, is first pure, then peaceable, then gentle, and open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. You see, godly wisdom seeks peace and harmony. Let me ask you, as we just look at the American social, political, cultural things that are going on today. How much different would it look if we had a wisdom, a philosophy, a rhetoric that was first pure, in which it sought the things that were good, one that was peaceable, one that was gentle and open to reason? Has any of you seen any political talk show like that? No. We're not open to anything. Now, open to reason does not mean compromising our faith and what God's Word says, but it says that it's the kind in which it has an open mind, in which it's seeking to deal righteously, to deal right. It's good fruits, it's impartial and sincere. Godly wisdom seeks peace and harmony. Godly wisdom results in righteousness. And we've explained James' use of righteousness is a conduct that is pleasing to God. So true wisdom, biblical godly wisdom, is that which leads to a life that is pleasing to God. So let me ask you today, are you a wise person or are you a foolish person? If we were to get a snapshot of your week, of, of one of your days or even an hour, would we look and say, oh, there is a person who is living in biblical wisdom. They're applying the Word of God in their lives. I would have to say many of us fail many times. But yet God says it's there for us. That's the type of wisdom that you and I ought to be praying for. It's the type of wisdom we ought to yearn for. And true wisdom comes from those who seek and promote peace. In other words, we're not to seek wisdom only so that we can dominate or that we can be the man of the hour or we can be that person that everyone wants to, to come to. And I tell you what, you need to be careful of people like that. You need to be careful of pastors and elders and teachers who seek to bring a, a following to themselves and seek to bring, make a branding of who they are. It's not a godly wisdom. So godly wisdom leads to peace and righteousness, while worldly wisdom leads to disorder and to sin. 
And so as we look at that church in that day, you can imagine as they're, as they're working through their refuge and sanctuary of trying to encourage one another, there's godly wisdom and there's, and there's worldly wisdom that's at war, seeking dominance, seeking to make itself preeminent. God says you need to be careful, for the peace of the church will be destroyed if you set your mind on the things of this world. And you might ask, why does this happen in the church? Why is it that churches have wars? How many of you have been in a church war? Okay, yeah, too many of us, too many of us. You say, what do you mean by church wars? Well, people who want to fight over the music. I mean, I remember the 80s. I mean, that's all it was. It was church music wars and music wars and music wars. Uh, Maybe it's the war over what people are dressing, what people are doing. Fights over translations of the Bible. Fights over all sorts of different types of things. In the end, where you're sitting and where someone else, or, or does the pastor say hi to me, or did he hug this person and only shake my hand, or, or that person ignored me. All these types of wars in which there's even some struggles going on, and I'll have to tell you, there's probably some struggles going on in this church that I may not be aware of yet. Usually I'm sometimes the last person that finds out these things. But why does it happen in the church of God? Throughout the history of the Christian church, you could see wars. Wars from without and wars from within. Why does it happen in the house of God? A place that's to be a refuge, a place that's to be a sanctuary, in which the wisdom of God is to be preeminent. But we see in chapter 4, why? Would you go through there in chapter 4? We see that there's competing desires. Competing desires lead to war in the house of God. We will always have the potential for these because we have people. And even though we may proclaim a profession of faith, we know that sin still stains us and we will struggle. There are some competing desires that lead to war in the house of God. Look at it, we see it in chapter 4, verse 1. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? James wants us to know. He gives us the answer right quickly. He says, is it not this? Is that your passions are at war within you? There's competing passions. There's competing desires. There's an absence of peace in this passage due to competing and frustrated desires. The same things that happen to in a marriage and happens to you at work happens to the house of God. Competing desires or frustrated desires. This is a breeding ground for jealousy and envy which leads to quarrels and fightings and murder. Slander and violence and murder are traced back to jealousy. And jealousy is just a debt that says that God owes me. That's what jealousy is. It says, God owes me. He gave that person this, and I should get it too. Look at how much God has prospered them. Why don't I have that? And you know what? All of us are guilty of it in one way or another. Whether it's in the the prospect of a home or a car or a family or a wife or a husband or maybe in our love life, it could be in the way in which we even look at our church and our finances and all these types of things. We harbor these desires that say, I should have this. My life should be like this. Look what God took away from me. It's not fair. 
We struggle with these things. We must remember, as James told us in James 1, verse 20, if you have your Bibles open, look at that verse 20. What does he say there? He says, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. No, peace produces the righteousness of God. Remember, that's what he told us just a few verses before. But if we go back, he says, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. You and I know this. Anger leads to war, does it not? It's the base emotion. It finally says, you owe me. I want this. I need to have myself satisfied. Verses 2 and 3, we see the cause and effect of problem solving without wisdom. The cause and effect of evil problem solving. He goes in verse 2, and he's now going to break it down in verse 2 and verse 3. He says, you desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. He says, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And you see the cause and effect when we try to solve our problems without the wisdom of God. The first thing we see, he says, you desire and you do not have, so you what? You murder. You kill. Jesus warned in Matthew chapter 5, and you say, is he speaking of actual murder here? In actual, in the Greek, he actually is. He's saying there is a cause in which there might be murder, actual murder happening. But we also know that Jesus says that anger in our heart is like what? Murder. It's killing. For in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus had said, You have heard that it was said of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. You see, you and I desire things. And we do not have it. So we murder. And you say, well, how in the world does that bring it to our context? Well, I think I would look into the, 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 the parable of the prodigal son. Many of you are familiar with that. It's the way that we view people. These type of passions and desires is an attitude that says, you are dead to me. The only thing that I care about is what you have and what you possess. If you were to turn to Luke 15, we're not going to go through that. I'm going to give you just a summation of it. It's Luke 15, 11 through 12. He says, and there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me a share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Now, at first blush, we say, well, there's just a son who's just wanting to sow his wild oats. And all of you know the story, I believe, of the parable of the prodigal son. But the importance of that verse to the Jewish man is when the younger son got something is when? When the father died. But when the father died, he actually gave all of his belongings to the older son. And the older son then would discern then whoever his siblings are, what they would get. He could not get anything. It was very well that he would not get anything. But here's his son. He desires what his father has so much, he is actually saying here, 
I wish you were dead. Why don't you just hurry up and die? I need the money now. You living, you're in my way, is what he's saying here. It's a strong essence of what he's saying here in Luke chapter 15. And that's the passions that many people have. When jealousy and covetousness comes, we say for the most part in our hearts, I just wish you were dead. I want what he wants. I want what he has. And that should not be so. When you desire what someone has and what they can do for you more than that person themselves, you are wishing that they were dead. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You just wish ill towards them. He says, and the second thing he says, you covet and you cannot obtain. You desire to have something that's not yours and you cannot obtain it, so you fight and you quarrel. It's like two monkeys going at it. I just, you know, remember kids when they're young? If, he, if I can't have it, then he can't. You just destroy it and break it. That's how it seems to be. Apostle John wrote, though, in 1 John, he says, Do not love the world, neither the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, uh, the desires of the flesh, and the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, it is not from the Father, but is from the world. But yet, you and I covet the things that are not from God, and it has caused war in the house of God. And it should not be. Be so. Now I'm not accusing anyone in this church of that. I don't, I, don't support, I don't see that in the house of God, but yet it can happen very easily. And let me tell you, you think, well, I can covet and desire and envy someone, and since it's only in my heart, and since I'm not physically taking what's theirs, it has no problem in my heart against them. But it does. Let me tell you, if you're envious of someone, it will affect how you see them and how you treat them and how you speak of them. Hence, James is saying, let your works and your words and your wisdom validate your faith. So let me share with you, if you're here today and you're struggling with a covetous heart, then you need to see that that will destroy the peace of God between you and another brother and sister in Christ. You're less likely to pray for them. You're less likely to weep with them when they weep and rejoice with them that rejoice. And it comes in a very subtle way. Let me ask you, would there be anyone in our church today that you would resist or hesitate to have lunch with, to invite in your home, or to sit down and pray? Why? Search your heart. It says you desire, you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot attain, so you fight and quarrel. Thirdly, it says you do not have because you do not ask. Now we just have to go back to James 1.5 where he already said, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. Remember that? Who gives generously and do all without reproach. And it says it will be given. If you want godly wisdom, pray for it. Ask God for it. If there's a need, as a professing Christian asks for it, he's already told us in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, don't be anxious for anything. But he says, your Father will provide all that you need. 
Yet many times we do not believe God will do that. As Jesus taught us, ask and will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open. And then he answers that claim that some say, wait a second, I have asked. God hasn't answered. He hasn't given me what I needed. He hasn't given me what my heart desires the most. Without raising your hand, are some of you in that boat? Have some of you have a prayer request and a desire that's just not been answered? Now he gives us this other piece of wisdom. For he says, you ask and do not receive. Because why? You ask wrongly. So you can spend it on your passions. Jesus is recorded in Matthew 6, 9 through 10, teaching the disciples again in the Sermon on the Mount to pray like this. You know this, right? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. See, many times we are asking wrongly because we don't really seek to advance God's kingdom and God's will but we seek to satisfy our own pleasures and our own desires. You see, disagreements are going to happen in the church of God. Disagreements are going to happen in a marriage and in a family. But they should not come at the cost of losing our Christian witness. There's going to be problems in the church community. There are going to be times in which we struggle. There are times that there are going to be true, reasonable disagreements on music, on finances, on the way the church looks, on the color of the carpet, whether I should be wearing a suit and a tie, or all sorts of different things. However, it should not come at the cost of our Christian testimony. Hence, that's the importance of peacemakers in the house of God, especially while we're in the midst of a hostile environment that's outside of the church looking to think it from without. The Apostle Peter urges us in the second chapter of that same book, he urges us as sojourners and exiles, which you and I are. The Bible tells us that we are not, for those of us who profess Christ, who have made that decision of faith, that we are not of this world. He says you are sojourners and exiles. You're to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you, and they will, and speak against us as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of your visitation. Unfortunately, the way many Christians have acted and spoken, they have not seen the glory of God, but they've seen a wicked worldly wisdom. And it should not be so. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. To be a peacemaker means that we need a biblical godly wisdom, one in which we're open-minded, we're, we're sincere and impartial, in which we seek to make peace among each other. You know, interestingly, this is just a side note. Interestingly, last night, while I was going over this message, I took a break to check Facebook like we always do. And I was just checking a post of some friends that used to be in our youth group uh, when we were um, 
in Freeport in the youth ministry. And they now have four kids, I think it was, four, four or five kids. And he writes this. He says he posted what he overheard his little son praying last night, speaking of last night. And this is what his little, I think it's five to seven-year-old son said. He said, forgive me, Jesus, for being selfish. Tonight I will only ask for wisdom and knowledge. Talk about the providence of God. From the mouth of babes. Let us strive to be peacemakers. Let us quench the desires that burn within us. Pray for peace. Live in harmony. For the enemy seeks to destroy from within. Let it not be so. May our wisdom prove the validity of our faith. Follow through with that profession. Father, we come before you and I thank you. For you said a house divided against itself cannot stand. And Father, we do not want to be a church that's divided. And Father, we will always have disagreements. We understand that. There will be times that we will not agree. There will be times when maybe even things are debated, even hotly and maybe even heatedly. But Father, we just pray that you would grant us to be peacemakers. Let us see the importance of living to outdo one another and showing honor to one another. And Lord, let our love be genuine as we prayed earlier. And Father, I pray that you would give us and grant to us that godly wisdom. Let us pray for it. And Father, Lord, may we glorify you as we become that refuge, that sanctuary from a harsh, evil, wicked world that just seeks to destroy your name. Father, we need this place and we need that peace. We thank you for it. We praise your name. God's people said... Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.